Welcome back to Just FYI Pod. Here we are at Ferris on 41st. Yet again, it's Friday afternoon, December what? The uh, 15th. It's the 15th. Yeah. December the 15th. Um, it's a little bit later in the afternoon than, than we normally record. And right. so therefore a little chillier. I can yeah. tell we might have to do a, a speed episode here so you can warm back up. Uh, but nevertheless, we're plowing ahead. This is going to be yeah. our Christmas special. Right. Uh, and before we get into the, uh, the sort of films that we have chosen, mm-hmm. what's going on? What are, what are your plans the next few days uh, um, leading up to Christmas? Welcoming one kid home from college yeah. and um, just getting ready for Christmas stuff. We're going to New York City for Christmas where my oldest lives. That sounds awesome to me. Just, just I for you. Yeah. guess no? if you're not spending the money. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be good. It'll be good. So what about you? Yeah, we used to, quickly on that, we yeah. used to go up to New York oh, yeah. when we were in Philly. We yeah. would always go up when the kids were little, mm-hmm. early in the holiday season. And one year, we got stuck there because it snowed. Oh, my God. And then we decided to leave because we couldn't find a hotel room. And we drove down the turnpike in the snow. It was crazy. But in any case, I, I love New York at Christmas time. Yeah. I've never been there actually on Christmas Eve yeah, or Christmas Day. So, okay, well, yeah, how nice is good. that? Um, yeah, no, you know, my, my kids are all getting out of school. And right. their promises to be much Yuletide, I don't know, color, flavor. <laughs> lots of, uh, lots of uh, you know, children's personalities interacting and uh hopefully we can keep the lid from blowing off um but in any case yeah other than that just plowing ahead with some work and uh uh hopefully i was telling you earlier hopefully my novel is out very soon i just got word that it'll be out possibly as early as next week on amazon, uh, on amazon and other fine booksellers so uh we maybe will come back. The name is Man of Pain, a novel. Right. Right. And uh, maybe at some point we'll talk a little bit more about Hope it. So. Um, but in any case, today yes. we're here to record. Well, we're really we're continuing our list of the yeah. twenty most spiritually significant films of all time. But both of us felt that we could include a Christmas film on this list in, in good conscience, right? Yes. I mean, yours was on your original list. Yes, correct. And it's definitely a Christmas movie. And so mm-hmm. I kind of searched my list thought through my other choices and decided to claim this my choice as a Christmas movie. Okay. I said, you know, if Die Hard's a Christmas movie, this is a Christmas movie. <laughs> okay, and so what is your choice? <laughs> my choice is The Apartment, the great Billy Wilder film from 1960 starring Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Yep, a, a young Shirley MacLaine. Very, and young Jack Lemmon. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess you're right, honestly. Yeah, um, yours is. And, and mine is It's a Wonderful Life, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the classic Christmas film directed by Frank Capra, starring Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed. Everybody's seen It's a Wonderful right. Life, uh, <laughs> which in a way makes it possibly kind of a redundant choice. But I think a lot of people would sort of put this in their list. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I look forward to talking about it. I love this movie. I'm sure you have something interesting to say. We'll see. We'll see. Okay, so we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We're going to do It's a Wonderful Life first because it came out chronologically first. It came out in 1946. The apartment came out in 1960. 1960. So we'll follow up with the apartment and uh, look forward to a good holiday discussion. Okay. It's a Wonderful Life. All right. This is number 12 on my list of the most spiritually significant films of all time. Uh, And it's a movie that, of course, is part of the holiday canon on TNT or TBS or whatever. NBC, I think, has shown it for years. And it's a movie that everybody has seen. I mean, I take it, you didn't put this on your original list, but you like the film, right? I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Would would you have had it on your list if I had? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. Because I'm, I hate to say it, I'm just not 
like a sentimental person. <laughs> I mean, in some ways I'm very sentimental, but my sentiment, sentiment tends to be filtered through darkness. <laughs> <laughs> there's and a there's, lot of darkness, darkness in this movie. In this. Yes, you're right, you're right. right. But yeah. It's hard-earned sentimentality. It, it I would, is, I would it argue. is. Right. I now, this movie gets me. I am not a like crier in movies. This is yeah. one of the few movies where I'm always like, oh, <laughs> I don't cry. Uh, I love this movie. Yeah. Um, but okay, let's talk about it. First. Okay. All right. So uh, obviously, the director of this film is one of the greats, right? Frank mm-hmm. Capra. Um, and just a little bit of background on him. So he was born in Sicily, mm-hmm. uh, and he immigrated to the U.S. Um, <clears throat> at a pretty young age, and the family eventually settled in in Los Angeles. Uh, and what's interesting about them is they were sort of an immigrant family. And you see some of the kind of undertones of that, right? And mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life with the Martini family right. and, and some of the comments about Italian-Americans that are sort of right. inserted in there. I was listening to a, an interview where apparently Capra insisted that some of the derogatory terminology that Potter uses about yeah. Italians be included. So, be interestingly true. enough, yeah. so he spoke mm-hmm. to his personal experience. But uh, he, despite this kind of you know, sort of impoverished background. He actually uh, was the only member of his family to go to college. Mm-hmm. I saw that. He went to Caltech. Mm-hmm. Fancy, right? Okay, yeah. But when he gets out with this degree in chemical engineering, yeah. he ends up kind of bouncing around uh, the West. I think he, like, rode trains. And <laughs> I guess he had some kind of a romantic spirit, you might say. He did yeah. odd jobs and so on. Uh, and then he eventually lands in, you know, this kind of emerging sort of, uh, you know, industry of, of filmmaking, right, mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Uh, he gets to start with uh, silent films. Mm-hmm. And apparently, due to his background in technology, mm-hmm. he was very quick to adapt to, to talkies, yeah. to, to films mm-hmm. with sound. Mm-hmm. A lot of directors, and by the way, as a plug, if you see the film Babylon, did you see that? No. I, I thought it was great. Okay. Yeah. I know you did. Yeah. You put it on your I did. list. It was last my number year. one list. Yeah, right. 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 So, so it, there's a great scene in Babylon where they're trying to integrate sound technology into their film, mm-hmm. and everybody's going crazy. And I mean, <laughs> it's, it is like, there's, it's take after take after yeah. take. Take the slightest thing. One guy ends up dying. It's like, <laughs> like literally, he like has yeah. a heart attack because he's in yeah. some kind of booth. Um, it's crazy, yeah. but uh, but apparently for Capra, no such trouble, mm-hmm. right? And so immediately, like a lot of the sort of production studios were like, "Oh, we like this guy. This Capra guy is somebody that can 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 run a film for us." So uh, so Capra ends up getting a lot of work very quickly early on, um, and uh, is a successful director. Now, you know, Capra in the 1930s was you know i guess i don't know maybe the spielberg or the scorsese right for for that yeah, time period i would say the spielberg not the, the spielberg <laughs> well considering the content of I, I would i think that's probably fair yeah, i think that's yeah. probably fair so so capra worked on a number of like really acclaimed films at this time so it happened one night from right. 1934 oh, right right a screwball comedy and then he did the the great political drama mr smith goes to washington starring mm-hmm. jimmy stewart right. right and this i think a lot of times when people think of frank capra films they think of it's a wonderful life and mr smith goes mm-hmm. to washington mm-hmm. um because he did kind of they, they sort of encapsulate this sort of vision of america which we'll come back to right. eventually but this right. vision of america that capra was sort of known to sort of convey mm-hmm. in his films uh in any case during world war ii capra was uh picked up by the military as a kind of propagandistic right. filmmaker, right? He was he right. was used to make sort of documentaries and training films for the U.S. military, um, and you might even sort of think of him as like the American equivalent of uh, Lenny Riefenstahl, the this Nazi filmmaker who you know she was yeah. making films for Hitler, the same way Capra was sort of enlisted to make films uh, for uh, the U.S. government and well, so a on. A lot of 
filmmakers were. Sure, right. Uh, yeah, a lot of American filmmakers were. I think Kubrick, no, not Kubrick, so, never mind. Yeah, Keep going. but I think some of Capra's footage from that era actually makes its way into mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life and that montage oh. sequence late uh, in the film. Uh, but in any case, uh, hmm. Capra, you know, so if, if in 19, you know, 39, he works on Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, then the war begins in earnest, right? right? 1941 with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He works in the military. So when he gets out, right, when the mm-hmm. war ends, he has to make a film. So someone forwards him, I believe it was like the head of Archive uh, Pictures, forwards mm-hmm. him this short story by the New Jersey-based historian Philip Van Doren Stern. Oh. Did you know this? No. 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 I'm about to blow your mind. <laughs> okay. okay. Right. It is actually rather interesting. And for, for people like you and me who like to write fiction, mm-hmm. we don't have a major contract with, uh, you know, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux right. or something. Not yet. Yes, not yet. It's coming. Right. <laughs> but, but Stern wrote a story um, called The Greatest Gift. Mm-hmm. And he thought it was a wonderful story, of course. And nobody liked it. He sent it around. <laughs> oh. uh, people turned it down left and right. So he decided that he would just print it out and stick it in his Christmas cards. Oh True story, gosh. right. So he mails it out. Uh, so that's what we should do. Yes, right? exactly, right. <laughs> so he mails it out with his Christmas cards and people tell him, the story is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had sort of based it off of Dickens' Christmas Carol. And you can see yeah. those, those uh, you know, kind of thematic similarities right. in different places. Uh, and eventually, word gets around to publishers and they decide to, to publish it. And it's finally, in uh, late 1944, issued in Good Housekeeping, (laughs) called The Man Who Was Never Born. Um, And that's how the story got put on Capra's desk, right? So Capra reads it. He likes it. He wants to adapt it into a movie. And so they begin working on the film in 1946, in April, Mm. at this massive uh, RKO Radio Pictures uh, production studio and ranch in California. I think there were two. I think there was a studio lot and there was a movie Mm. ranch. Mm -hmm. And it was apparently this massive set. Mm. Big Mm -hmm. budget, that sort of thing. Um, And they they really worked from April until July. So all of the snowy sequences in the film are done in the heat. Oh, my God. That's that's impressive. It is impressive because I always get... You know, I want to sort of yeah, it, you know, put a blanket really on. It communicates cold. Yes, it yeah. really does, right? Yeah. So great job by everybody involved <laughs> there. And I, and I want to say, too, just as a quick aside, that they, they worked on a new kind of snow oh. that would sort of stand up under those conditions, yeah. which I think... They had to, yeah. yeah which I think yeah. became kind of a standard uh, from then uh, that point forward. So eventually, It's a Wonderful Life, as it's mm-hmm. now called, comes out uh, around Christmas time, December the 20th, 1946, oh. Uh, it's released at the Globe Theater, mm-hmm. now that it's today called the Globe Theater, in Midtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the interesting part. It's a Wonderful Life, initially, is considered okay, right. right? There was another movie that you have covered on this podcast that was considered the far superior film. Do you know what it was? I guess it was The Best Years of Our Lives. Yeah, that's right. right. That's, yeah. it. that's exactly mm-hmm. it. So those two films came out roughly at the same time. Mm-hmm. Best mm-hmm. Years of Our Lives came out in late November. Um, it's a Wonderful Life comes out a few weeks later. And some people said, well, this is a, this is a very good film. It's a solid Capra film. Yeah. But it's not the best years of our lives. It was just yeah. kind of the feeling. Uh, and critic uh, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, who's a very mm-hmm. prominent critic at the time, said that Capra's film is just too optimistic, too facile uh, to really stand up to a film mm-hmm. like The Best Years of Our Lives, mm-hmm. which has some you know, pretty, uh, you know, pretty, I guess, difficult or challenging material. Right. Um, I, I don't know if that does that sort of pump you up or yeah, you feel you feel like you're on to something there. <laughs> I'm justified. No, yeah, no. Right, I mean, right. it's just 
I don't know where Crowther's coming from, but, you know, I'm sure that post-war, you know, even two years post-war, people had different ideas of what fit the mood and mm-hmm. what fit the time. You know? Right, right. It, it is post-war, right? right. And both films yeah. do touch on the war. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, yeah, it does. it is a matter of kind of seeing it through the lens of that era versus mm-hmm. seeing it through the lens of our era. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, others, you know, said, you know, this is a, a fine film. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. Did not win in any of those mm-hmm. categories, uh, which is a little bit surprising. Um, and yet, it lost money at the box office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was not a big, big blockbuster hit. Yeah. Uh, and seemed, you know, potentially destined to fade into obscurity mm-hmm. until... The beauty of cable television, <laughs> of <course. laughs> right? Of course, right. It gets resurrected in the late nineteen sixties and in early nineteen yeah. seventies. It becomes kind of this holiday staple Stay- on on mm-hmm. various, you know, yeah. Whether it's network TV or eventually cable television, mm-hmm. it gets put on and it's rerun. It's rerun. Or in the in the lingo of the Bill Simmons podcast, it's the ultimate rewatchable. It's yeah. the Christmas rewatchable. Right. Um, and by the nineteen eighties. It was a classic, mm-hmm. uh, a bona fide classic. Capra himself was sort of on record as being like, I can't believe this is <laughs> a really big classic, but yeah. hey, what can I do? Um, and, you know, now it's sort of emerged that not only is it considered a classic film, a classic Christmas film, mm-hmm. but it's considered one of the great films of all time. Mm-hmm. So in mm-hmm. 2002, uh, the UK-based Channel 4 mm-hmm. said it's the seventh best film of all time. Um, now, I myself, I mean... I can see the flaws yeah. in the film. It's hard for me to say, well, this really stands up with, I don't know, Taxi Driver or something. <laughs> yeah. But in another sense, I do think it, I think it actually does. Mm-hmm. Um, I think okay. it's hurt almost a little bit by its Christmas season kind sure. of themes. And it seems a little hokey, but it, there, there is, there, I think there's a, a real power to the story that can mm-hmm. be easily lost if you're just catching like the last 20 minutes on right. NBC, like after you've eaten a lot of <laughs> Christmas pie right. or whatever. Right. <laughs> so, uh, okay. To the movie itself. Yeah. All right. When you consider the plot of it's, it's it's a wonderful life. You know, it's pretty it's pretty easy to see why it would kind of strike people as nostalgic or hokey mm-hmm. in some way. So first of all, if you get the feeling when you watch it that you've seen this story before, <laughs> it's because you kind of have, yeah. right? Uh, it's kind of a Dickens, a Christmas yeah. Carol, right? Yeah. There's this sort of this guy that in just one night he has these, you know, gets to relive like his life and mm-hmm. see all of the you know, the beauty that he had missed and so on. Then he has this ecstatic, exuberant kind of uh, conversion. Right. And, and so there's a sense in which it is kind of derivative. And it's undoubtedly sentimental. I agree yeah, with you yeah. there. Um, and so you can see why some of the some of the critics had kind of sharpened their knives. And you can kind of get mm-hmm. what they were going to say. I think you were going to add something there, no, right? No, no, no. No? Are you sure? Yeah, you're, I'm you're, sure. You're yeah, saving I, it later. I, yeah. I, yeah, I have no problem. Okay. <laughs> so... What I think is interesting about the film is that, you know the song, it's that most wonderful time, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Yeah. Yeah. The The Andy Williams track, right? right? Or he made it famous anyway. Well, it talks about, quote, scary ghost stories. Have you ever caught Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. line in the middle of the song? Mm -hmm. Apparently this was some kind of like, you know, sort of prominent Victorian practice that you would tell these scary ghost stories around the time of Christmas. Mm -hmm. Obviously, A Christmas Carol fits into that um, as well. And so I do think that this movie falls into that kind of Mm -hmm. tradition. Mm -hmm. But what it does, and I I think in a way that A Christmas Carol doesn't do, is that it theologizes it. It makes it almost more explicitly Christian. Oh, it does. Yeah, than A Christmas Carol is. Yeah, I mean, there's 
you know, it begins with prayer. Right. People pray. Precisely. <laughs> right. And I'm going to come back to that because yeah. I used to show this clip in one of my theology classes precisely mm. for that reason because it's a movie they all like. Mm. And it's like, ooh, there's theological categories <laughs> that you're interested in. Right. You need to even know it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, because it does, it starts with a prayer mm-hmm. and, it, and, it, and in some sense it ends with a hymn, right? Yeah. Hark the Herald yeah. Angels Sing. Okay. All right. So, what's it about? All right, so one of the things about It's a Wonderful Life, it's the, 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 the sort of structure of the story is kind of interesting, right? It's basically a flashback. Most of the film is being told in a flashback, right? Mm-hmm. There's a guardian angel named Clarence Oddbody, <laughs> played by uh, Henry Travers, uh, and he is being sort of caught up to speed on a crisis, right? The crisis is that a young man named George Bailey is contemplating suicide, mm-hmm. and... Clarence is his guardian angel and has been assigned to rescue George from this impending disaster. And I was just going to say real quickly as kind of like a side note, I'm going to cover another film in our list eventually that has to do with angels. And it's interesting to think about angelology and how it seeps into popular filmmaking Mm -hmm. and how there's different angelologies that are sort of present. Yeah. This is a very interventionist type angelology. Mm -hmm. Um, so in any case, uh, this this all of this is sort of going down with Clarence, right? On mm-hmm. on a snowy Christmas Eve in this town called Bedford Falls, but as Clarence eventually learns, you know, this is sort of an unfolding story. It's been going on for for quite quite a, a long time, and Clarence is shown by his fellow angels. Is it Joseph? Yeah, he calls him Joseph. Right. So I don't know if it's like Joseph, the father of <laughs> right, Jesus, right. or it just. Who is this Joseph? Right. They were sitting around like, what should we call these angels? Uh, Joseph and Clarence. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. So in any case, what then unfolds is basically a series of like short films, Mm -hmm. right? Or vignettes that kind of Mm -hmm. illustrate to Clarence um, sort of George Bailey's character, why he is in this predicament, and the the sort of nature of the problem, right? And essentially what it comes down to is that George Bailey is this smart and ambitious person who has continually sacrificed his own aspirations and desires to help other people. And this has caused him a great deal of disappointment, Mm -hmm. right? And it's put him in this, we'll talk about it, but in this deep crisis that has to be resolved. Um, And so Clarence sort of pulls up a chair as it were, (laughs) right? right? And hears or or watches, I guess I should Mm -hmm. say, uh, these different um, vignettes. So the first one is George's child. By the way, what, is there one that's your favorite? I'm curious. In, in these like vignettes where you're like, I particularly enjoy that. Well, I do like the courtship one mm-hmm. with him and Mary. I like that With one. the buffalo gals? Buffalo gals. Yeah, especially right. the scene after the dance, you know, when they're mm-hmm. walking home. That's that's a great scene. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't like that scene. Really? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, well, I do like that the old guy is like, why don't you get on kiss her? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. But um, yes, I mean, it, I can understand why you would like that scene. Um, that would not be my favorite George and Mary scene, okay. but whatever. Okay. okay. So Clarence first is, is, is given kind of a window into George's childhood. And what we learn early on is that George has saved his little brother, Harry, at a young age from drowning. Um, he caught some kind of cl- cold or flu and, and, and hurt his own ear his in the ear, process. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, and I think one of the most moving scenes of, of it might be mm. my most poignant okay. scene. I don't have to think about that. But in, in a very moving scene, the young George catches this grief-stricken uh, pharmacist named right. Mr. Gower. Mm-hmm. 
Mr. Gower has lost his son ostensibly to the Spanish flu of 1919. Right. That's the year. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Gower is sort of weeping. He's drunk. Dr- he's, yeah, he's, sitting, yeah. he's sitting back in the... Apparently the actor was drunk. I read this. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the young George perceives that something's off. He notices that Mr. Gower is filling the capsules with poison, mm-hmm. labeled very boldly poison. <laughs> I don't, that was a, if I had to do a nitpick there, that's yeah. what would be one of my nitpicks. Uh, I mean, come on, Gower. Right. I know you're drunk, but, <laughs> but like, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, George sees it. Mm-hmm. Gower doesn't. He refuses to take the capsules to the family that they're you know, being prepared for. Gower slaps him on the ear. He starts bleeding. Right. And then Gower realizes I've, I was wrong. I was about to hurt somebody. Uh, and so we learn right there that George is the kind of person that will kind of take a beating to help right. other people. Right. Yeah. And he does. And it's, it's a very, it's a very powerful scene. Another thing we learn from George's childhood is that there's this profound tension within this town of Bedford Falls mm-hmm. between this kind of dour, mean spirited, aristocratic, uh, you know, businessman named, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Potter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it is it Henry Potter? I think it's Henry Potter. Yeah, Henry Potter, played by Lionel Barrymore, the right. great uh, actor from the great sort of theatrical family. Yep. Um, and th- he's on the one side. And then the other side is, is George's father, mm-hmm. right? Uh, played by this benevolent kind of looking actor named Sam Hines. Mm-hmm. Um, and George's father, Peter, runs a, a small building and loan, which is like a local savings and loan association. Right. Basically, what they do is they take in deposits from the community and then they, they use it to kind of lend out uh, uh, money for mortgages and so, mm-hmm. that, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so Peter is this very respectable uh, sort of member of the community, but he's also just worn out by Potter. And, and who wouldn't mm-hmm. be? Right. right. <laughs> it's like the SNL skit. I see. <laughs> yeah. For those right. who haven't seen the SNL skit where they, they, they redo the ending of the film and instead of them like kind of all reconciling they all decide to go beat the crap out of Potter and it's I have to say it's starring of course the great Dana Carvey yes a fantastic um yes. Jimmy Stewart. oh wow Perfect. and also Jan Hooks as Mary and mm-hmm. Jan Hooks is like was the best Jan she, Hooks was good she was yeah. the best yes. yeah those are the those are the good old yeah. days um so so you have this tension between Peter Bailey the Bailey family and then Mr. Potter Okay, this then takes us to the next short film, which is George's Youth, your, apparently yeah. your favorite yeah. uh, sequence. And what we learn here is that George, he grows up, he's, an, he's ambitious, he wants to travel. I want to see the world. <laughs> you know, he wants to go wherever he can go. He's going to go to college, he's going to travel, he's got big dreams, he's going you know, he to he's gonna build things, mm-hmm. right? He's got all these, mm-hmm. these, these great hopes. Um, but his father suddenly takes ill right at that scene right. where he and and Mary are, are, yeah, are sort and of his first brother comes and gets him. Right. right. So, so this forces George into this dilemma. He ultimately decides, no, he'll stay in Bedford Falls. He will take over the building and loan. Right. And, uh, his brother, Harry will go to college instead. Right. Okay. Uh, and this is a hard kind of situation for George, but he does it because if he refuses, they're going to let Potter dissolve the building and loan. Mm-hmm. So kind of to protect his father's legacy and his life work, George decides, I have to do this. Harry gets to go to college. George stays in Bedford Falls. In the meantime, he's developing this kind of interest in Mary Hatch, this local uh, uh, girl who he's been around for years, and she has this kind of profound crush on him. Right. She whispers (laughs) to him as a child, I'll love you till the day I die. In his bad ear. Yes, right. In his bad ear. So (laughs) he doesn't know that. It is true. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, he's not, 
he wants to go away. Right. He's not real keen on Mary at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. he thinks she's pretty, but that's mm-hmm. sort of it, right? Mm-hmm. All right, this leads us to the next long, the longer kind of vignette. But this is George's adulthood or young right. adulthood. Um, and what happens here is that Mary comes back to Bedford Falls, and in a very tense sequence that always makes my wife, she's like, ah. I just think George is wrong in this scene, which he, he when is. When he goes to her house. When he goes to her house. That's a great scene. I like that scene, too. There's a lot of complexity in that scene. Yeah, there is, right. yeah. But in any case, uh, they decide to get married. Uh, it, 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 I think what comes out there is that George loves Mary. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's you know, very drawn to her as a person, but he doesn't want to stay in Bedford Falls. Right. And if he marries her, he's stuck, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the problem is that Harry after college and he's the football star (laughs) Harry just kind of gets it all he really (laughs) forget this guy Uh, but but Harry's the football star he's not coming back he's got a lucrative position with his wife's father and if George marries Mary he's stuck right right? and he knows that so there's a lot of tension on George's part uh, in terms of what he should do Uh, but eventually they they decide to get married um, they, they, they save up this money. Mm-hmm. They have this wedding. Mary's mother looks very right. disappointed. Not happy. <laughs> right? not happy. Um, and just as they're about to head off on a great trip, yeah. there's a bank run. This is early mm-hmm. 1930s. Mm-hmm. George races in and they have to give away at Mary's with Mary's blessing. They mm-hmm. give away all of their, their, their savings for their honeymoon. Right. And this up. notion yeah. of being stuck is kind of reinforced. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, well, you know, time passes, um, Potter kind of realizes that if he could just get rid of George Bailey, he could just have control Everything, over this whole right. town, right? And he decides, you know what? I know how to get to George <laughs> Bailey. I'm going to flatter him, Yeah. right? So he invites him into his office, and he says, look, you're not making a lot of money. And I looked this up. He's making about $40,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in, in current terms. Right. So he, he tells, he tells uh, George, look, you're not making a lot of money. You have a family. What are you going to do when they get older? How are you going to? How are you going to sort of you know, keep your kids happy and successful and so on. And he says, look, um, I want you to work for me. I'm going to, you know, not, it wasn't double your salary. It was something astronomical. Yeah. Huge, yeah. uh, huge was, but yeah. raise. And he says, and he dangles the, the ultimate carrot in front of George, maybe some business trips to, to New York. And right. So maybe some time in Europe. Right. Right. He knows exactly what to say. Well, George, he really, he, for a moment he's tempted, but then he decides, no, he kind of loses his temper he, he runs out, he calls uh, Potter a, a, a spider, mm-hmm. you know, a scurvy spider. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so po- this kind of sticks with Potter because years later, after the war, there's a big party planned, right, mm-hmm. for uh, George's brother, Harry. He's right. gone off into the Navy, he'd become a great uh, fighter pilot, pilot, taking on kamikaze fighters. Um, and Potter uh, comes into... A, a significant amount of money, right? And this is like, it's a little bit complicated, but basically it's this. George's uncle, uh, Billy, Billy, who is a widower and an alcoholic mm-hmm. and has clearly some kind of mental problems. Mm-hmm. Billy, <laughs> for some reason, has been tasked <laughs> with depositing the money the in the local bank, right? right? Well, Billy sees Potter, decides to talk some trash, yeah. right? <laughs> he tells Potter, oh, we're having this big party for Harry and George has done so well and and he waves a newspaper at Potter and he sticks the $8,000 in the newspaper and hands it to Potter. Mm-hmm. Well, Potter is like, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> he knows that that's their big deposit. Right. right. And this puts, uh, this puts the Bailey family in, in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. When Billy tells George, I don't have the money, mm-hmm. 
George absolutely goes bizarre, goes mm-hmm. bonkers, mm-hmm. right? And I, I suppose it's an open question. I don't know if you want to chime in on this. Do you think he goes too far here, or, or do you think you can really identify oh, with I his... Oh, I think you can identify with his actions, right. definitely. Right. I, I, I agree. I, I feel his pain there. I mean, yeah. so he... He yells at Billy. He says, you know, this is going to be bankruptcy and scandal in prison. We're all going to prison. We, mm-hmm. They're going to think I embezzled this money. There's a bank examiner coming. Right. Um, there's there's all kinds of, of, of pressure to find this money. Billy is losing it. Um, he's sort of a holy fool type character, yeah. right? Like squirrels, like, come up to him. And, <laughs> right. you know, and, and, the, and there's the, the, uh, the raven that lands yeah. on his arm. Yeah. So Billy's just, he's a mess, right? And so George storms home. Only to find out that his young daughter, Zuzu, has mm-hmm. caught a cold. Right. Well, then he gets on the phone with the teacher. teacher. He blasts mm-hmm. the teacher. Right. He goes downstairs. He blasts his kids. Why are you playing the piano so badly? Right. And, and it, it's perfectly off-key. Yeah. Just to the point where you would be like, I mean, I'm sure this was an intentional decision by Capra, but mm-hmm. you're like, uh, yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. He's, you know, please stop playing the piano. He kicks over this model This he's his been corner, working on. The, what yeah. his creations are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he runs out into this snowstorm, mm-hmm. right? And he and he, he goes straight to Potter and he says, Potter, Mr. Potter, I need a loan. I'm mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to jail. And Potter kind of in a sort of in a sniveling, kind mm-hmm. of horrible way, you know, basically is like, I'm not gonna help you. You must have a, a girlfriend or some kind of mm-hmm. scandal here. Of course mm-hmm. Potter knows that he has the money. Right. Um, and then he tells George something that really smacks him upside the face. He says, You're worth more dead than alive. Yeah. Well, this leads George down the rabbit hole even further. Mm-hmm. He goes to the local bar. He's pounding the drinks. Yeah. He gets into it with the teacher's husband, who for right. some reason is in that bar. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave that off right. to the side too. Uh, and he finds finally, after all of these kind of you know, I guess problems, you know, sort of surfacing, he winds up on the local bridge, yeah. and he's standing on the bar, and he's ready to dive into this icy, churning river below him. Mm-hmm. And it's that point that the story finally gets to the present day, yeah. right? Because right. now Clarence falls into the river right. from the heavens, mm-hmm. okay? And he sort of knows that George instinctively is a helper. Right. He falls into the river. George poof, dives into the river, and he saves Clarence, you know? They get taken back up to this kind of toll keeper's mm-hmm. cabin, which is, or I guess it's kind of like a, it's not like a cabin. It's a booth. Yeah, a booth. I okay. Think, yeah. And uh, they're sort of warming up. And right. Clarence reveals to, to George, he says, you know, I'm your guardian angel and I'm here to help you. And you, you can't do this to yourself. And George, of course, is like, you know, hey there, little fella. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he kind of right. gives you know, Clarence a, a hard time. It's like, ah, you're just a crazy old man. What are you right. talking about? So... George confesses to Clarence things would be better if he would have never been born. Mm -hmm. And that's when Clarence shows him the world of Bedford Falls without him. Now it's called Pottersville. We can talk about this in a second, but is it sad to me that basically it looks like New Orleans? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, she's like walking down the street and I'm like, well, that's not too bad. It's the French Quarter. Right. It's the... (laughs) Who hasn't been to the French Quarter? Anyway, we will... will, Yeah, it's, it's meant to be this kind of this degradation of yeah. this beautiful small town, which is now full of poker joints and strip mm-hmm. joints and the mm-hmm. sol- the sort of whole thing. And everybody that he, you know, was friends with and knew in his former life is now changed in some sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, Harry never made it. Harry died in right. this, in this accident because George wasn't born. Right? right. And then his mother is now kind of running this kind of crappy sort of broken boarding down boarding house. And mean and, and bad spirits. Right. Yeah. Uncle Billy is in an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 
Mary is an old maid, which is a little bit of a odd choice. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know how I feel about it. It just doesn't yeah. seem dramatic enough. Of like, course. oh, she's a librarian. Oh, no. <laughs> you know things have gone right? badly yeah, for her. Right. She's a librarian. <laughs> That's the worst thing that could happen. Well, in any case, George, George now realizes, you know, and, and Clarence says, he says, you see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you mm-hmm. see what a mistake it would be to throw it all away? Mm-hmm. And at that point, George kind of breaks down and he says that he wants to live. And of course, in the, one of the most famous scenes in movie history, George goes tearing back through, now he's back in the sort of right. the real world. Right. He goes tearing back through Bedford Falls in, in a kind of Scrooge-like delirium, right? right? He's yelling at everybody, Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas, Merry yeah. Christmas, right? It's a beautiful scene. He gets back to the house. And as it turns out, all of the prayers that we saw at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film have now kind of come full circle because right. Mary has got the whole town to come out they start bringing money and valuables. They're mm-hmm. dumping them on a table. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's sort of pitching in to save George. And it's, it's a fantastic right. scene. Uh, and then finally, Harry bursts in. And he says, and they, well, I should say, they realize they can cover the money after all. They can yeah. cover that deficit after all. Harry bursts in. And he says, yeah. to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. And they all break into song. Right. right? right. Hark the Han- Herald Angels Sing. And then, of course, Old Lang Syne. Uh, the Robert Burns uh, poem turned folk song, or I think it's a folk tune set yeah. to Robert Burns uh, lyrics. And that's it. And Clarence yeah. gets his wings and we're all happy. <laughs> all right. Now, again, I'm sure many people know the story, but I do think it's important to think about the way the story is structured and to see the parallels to um, a, a Christmas Carol. And then also to understand that despite your criticism that the movie has a kind <laughs> of, uh, what, did, what did you say, a kind of sentimentality? Yeah. That, that it's, a, I think, a hard-earned oh, sentimentality. Oh, it is. I totally agree. Right. I mean, he actually is going to kill himself. Right. I mean, and it's... And... The, and not the, an empty threat on his part. It's not It's right. not just not, It's not just that, either. It's a... You know, this this apparently kind of good, goody two-shoes kind of guy actually has a pretty tough life. Right. You know, it's... He, yeah, go ahead. He's suffering. You know, he's he, suffering, he, right. And he is sacrificed. Right. And, um, his, you know, he hasn't been able to follow his dreams. As, right. You know, and that's kind of the watchword of today. Just follow your dreams. And he hasn't been able to, but it's been for the good. Yeah, it's right. an interesting film in that regard because, yeah. it, like a lot of Disney films, it starts mm-hmm. with a wish, right? When you wish right. upon a star, you know, oh, like, I, this is what I want to be. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of those films, they end with the, the wish being granted. Yeah. And, and that's the happy ending. Here, right. the happy ending is that the wish isn't granted. Right. right. Not not right. his original wish. Right. A different wish is granted. Right. But, okay. So here are what I would identify as the kind of key themes in the film that I think, every, at least when I watch it, they kind of come back to me. The first one is actually not theological, but more like political or philosophical. Okay. So one of the things that this movie has been accused of over the years, it was actually accused of in its day, is being kind of sort of a, a pseudo-communist vision or a kind of socialist oh, really? Marxist oh, type film. Against right? capitalism? Right, maybe? right. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, so the reason why, of course, is that Mr. Potter is this kind of, you know, this sort of greedy, laissez-faire capitalist. Is like, yeah. you know, all he wants to do is make money and put people out of business. And I guess he's like Jeff Bezos or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, and on the other side is, is George and his family. They represent the good. They're, you know, they're, they're all about, you know... Um, I guess, the, the, again, the common good or sharing well. Right. But here's the thing where I don't think this critique is exactly right is that they, the Baileys run their own business. Yeah. It's not a government-run business. Right. Yeah, it, this is not like they're, like, working in some government bureaucracy doling out money. It's right. actually a business. It's just that their own kind of, I guess you might say, their ability to kind of restrict their curb, their desires, their discipline, 
uh, allows them to run their business in such a way that they're not trying to just nakedly profit off of everybody, right? They want to live off of their business, but they don't want to just always just take every last penny. And it's a business based on trying to make people's lives better. Correct, right. I mean, you have the scene where they, I mean, they built a subdivision, basically. Right. Which is, you know, based on getting, on providing good homes that people, not giving them, but, Mm. you know, selling nice little homes to people who wouldn't ordinarily have that opportunity. So it's not charity, it's... Right, it's not pure charity, it's not government um, and I guess what I would say then to this point, what I think is worth sort of reflecting on, again, given this kind of thread on the internet or on YouTube right. discussions of the film, is that, that all, yeah, well, it kind of is. It's just sort yeah. of a misunderstanding as to what the Baileys represent. But I, I think what we can say is that Capra is definitely critical of a certain kind of capitalism. Well, sure. We can call it kind of globalistic profiteering or something right. like that. Um, but he's not recommending communism or socialism per se. I guess I would say that when you watch the film, there's kind of a Jeffersonian vision of what American life should be. Community, what community is. Right. right. Or it's the, the, the quote that's often attributed to Jacques Ellul, the French uh, thinker. You know, the, you're, in Capra's world, you know, you might think globally, but you act locally. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're sort of, you're living in your community. And, right. and it seems like what he really wants is a kind of America or what he's recommending is an America of, small businesses, local mm-hmm. concerns, neighbors taking care of neighbors, church members taking care of church members, mm-hmm. and, and this sort of thing. So um, I will say, so it is sobering when you watch it too, to think that like as much as we get nostalgic about this film and sort yeah. of love it, that Potter has kind of won <laughs> you know, in, in our world today. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in this kind of world of sort of rampant globalized capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, you think about Coke or again, Amazon or any of these corporations, Apple, uh, right prioritizing profit right right, right. and and just that the we all know that small towns are hurting and mm-hmm. and that you know local communities are increasingly vitiated by you know kind of again a kind of mind a universalist mindset we might mm-hmm. say where you know you don't mm-hmm. really think about well i'm here i'm there but but rather mm-hmm. we're all part of this global community mm-hmm. which kind of takes away from a sense of local responsibility right. i think the i think potter in a sense is the lasting figure of the yeah. film and Capra's America seems to be almost gone now. Yeah. Um, anyway, I don't know if that's true. It's worth debating, but it's yeah. something to think about. Okay. Another point here, and this is, mm-hmm. I think more uh, theological. I mean, I, I read that Capra said that this film was in his mind, a kind of attempt to turn back atheism that he saw as kind of a growing problem in really? the 20th century. But the, this, one of the conclusions of the film reminds me a great deal of another sort of piece of art yeah. Uh, that was intended to combat atheism. I'm talking about Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brother Karamazov, okay. right? Yeah. So in that film, or that book, excuse me, Dostoevsky has a character named Elder Zosima. Mm-hmm. And the elder gives this long series of kind of sermons that are collected by Alyosha Karamazov, mm-hmm. the, I guess the sort of nominal hero of the, mm-hmm. of the story. And one of Zosima's sayings um, is that you know, everything in the world is connected. And I think this is almost a direct quote. I didn't have a chance to write down the direct mm-hmm. quote, but it's something like, you know, everything is connected. If you touch something here or it'll sort of ripple around the world, like mm-hmm. a, you know, one movement in this place yeah. can ripple clean across the world. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that Zosima sees this is that because he's kind of addressing the, the concerns of Ivan Karamazov, mm-hmm. who's this powerful atheistic figure and, and the brother of Alyosha and Ivan opposes the notion of God's existence because of the, the problem of evil. Right. And Yvonne sees that some people are visited with just 
unjust occurrences and so on. But what mm-hmm. Elder Zosima wants to do is he wants to turn it back on Yvonne and say, mm-hmm. the, the, the little actions that you make, the, 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 you know, he even gives this example. If you look at a child in a mean way, you didn't even know you did it, mm-hmm. but that could set the child on a bad path. Right. And that in a way we're all connected both mm-hmm. in, in good ways and in bad ways. And so it, it puts a kind of impetus on the human being to take responsibility for the way he or she right. carries out their lives. Well, I think that's basically the point of the movie, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. And you see it in George, right? I mean, George, mm-hmm. he's not a perfect man, mm-hmm. but all of his good, as we end up learning, has rippled throughout society. It even saves the the, the, the people that Almost, Harry has saved, right, yeah, in the right. war. If he hadn't been born, those people would have died. Right. Thousands of men on that ship would have died. Precisely. Right. And then we see it with Potter, too. When we mm-hmm. get the vision of the world without George... Potter's sort of imprint is on everything, right? It's called Pottersville. It's called Pottersville, right? Right. So I think in a sense, you know, what Capra is saying is that it's not just that, you know, it's not that we can say that God is absent or unjust. It's rather that life is very fragile. Everything Mm -hmm. is connected and linked. Mm -hmm. And so that everything that we do as human beings matters. And I think that's a kind of deep spiritual sort of point that's being made by the film. And finally, and I'll wrap this up quickly is I think the movie ultimately illustrates this theological principle of communio sanctorum, right? The, the communion of saints. I was thinking that too. Yeah, no, no. The commun- <laughs> you probably were, the communion of saints, right? Okay. And, I, and this is where I used it in my theology classes because, yeah. you know, I, I pointed out to the students that it's very hard for us to think about human beings being mystically connected. Mm-hmm. But we see people kind of invoking this principle all the time. So people yeah. get on Facebook, I have a friend who's sick or whatever, will you pray for, for, right. you pray for him or her? Um, and that is essentially a kind of calling out of the mystical body of Christ right. that we want people to participate in the healing of this person together, yeah. right? In right. a spiritual way, because they can't all be there. Right. They can't all lay hands on this person. Well, I think, again, essentially that's what's happening here, right? We see the beginning of the film. They're all praying for George. Right. And their prayers are answered. Maybe not exactly in the way they expected. Right. But there's a deep sort of connection, a, a deep kinship between these different uh, human beings. So... Those are my main theological, sort of philosophical takeaways for the film. All right, hit me with the categories and we should wrap up. Funniest moment. (laughs) All right, so I told you, (laughs) we talked about this. There's there's some humor in the film. The part that makes me laugh the most is, I think, unintentionally funny. (laughs) Yeah. But it's when George is is living this life where he didn't, he had never been born. And he goes back to the bar that he had (laughs) been at, uh, you know, uh, previously. Mm -hmm. And, um... He's talking to this bartender who before was quite kindly and, and generous. Right. Well, now the guy's this hard sort of gangster from like, right. I guess, some, you know, I don't know where, like, <laughs> Queens or something. And the guy says, he says, we sell, George asks for a drink. He says, we sell hot drinks from men. I can't even laugh. We sell hot drinks from men who want to get drunk fast. And, uh, and it just the way he says it is too perfect. It cracks right. me up. Every time, uh, I think usually I walk around for like an hour after the movie to say that, right? Even to like my kids. Okay, go ahead. All right, most poignant moment. Um, it's it's the ending, oh, of course. course. It's yeah. the ending when, when they all dump their money out and they're mm-hmm. all, we're here for you, George. You know, it's mm-hmm. beautiful. But I would say a close second is Gower's recognition oh, yeah. of his his, his mistake. mistake. Yes. Right. So those yeah. are both very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I. It's not poignant, but I think you know one of my favorite scenes is the conversation when Mary's talking to the other guy, Sam or whatever. Yeah, on the phone right. In New Yeehaw. York. Yeah. Yeehaw. <laughs> and and uh, George is like right there with her. And as you said, there are just so many layers to that. Mm-hmm. It's like he's saying he doesn't want to marry mm-hmm. her, but 
he does and so what, what finally makes him, you know, claim her in a way. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, he's really struggling. Right, he's right. struggling now. Yeah, you can see that. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. That's, it's, it's an off-putting scene, but you're right. There, it might be the most modern scene in a way. Yeah. It's deeply complex, right. I think, and, and, and there's a lot of, you know, antagonistic <laughs> feelings going on at the same right. time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, if you could only watch one scene. The last scene, of course. I think basically starting with starting with the time that George goes home and they're playing Hark the Herald Angels Sing yeah. and he loses his temper to the ending. Yeah. That's one of the best, I don't know, what is that, maybe 40 minutes? I'm not mm-hmm. sure, but one of the best 40 minutes in the history of oh, movies, yeah. I'm pretty That's sure. Great. Yeah. That's great. All right, and best performance? Okay, so the obvious answer here is Jimmy Stewart. He yeah. is fantastic, yeah. but I've got to I've got to raise my hand for Donna Reed here. Oh, yeah, I mean, she's absolutely. it's she's so noble and mm-hmm. so patient. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a great portrait of I think loyalty mm-hmm. when a lot a lot in a lot of cases she doesn't have to be like right. like George consistently kind of screws up and she mm-hmm. constantly forgives him it's mm-hmm. it's beautiful performance yeah I, think. I agree and then ultimate takeaway uh what, what's the I don't I want to get the quote right but but basically you know no man is alone who has friends right isn't that right. it yeah, yeah I think I is. think the, the the this notion that the way we take care of each other and our friendships you know, is not only just kind of a virtue on its face, but also something that's deeply woven into the nature of being mm-hmm. is, uh, I think, a really powerful idea. Okay. So that's it. That's great. That's my take on It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> okay. All right. So we will come back, uh, take a quick break, maybe grab a drink, and we'll come back and we'll talk about the, the apartment. apartment. Right. Yes. Okay. So we're back and we're here to talk now about the apartment. And I just want to tell you, yeah. I need to say this. Okay. I want to thank you for recommending this movie to me. Really? I, there, I've seen enough rom-coms in my life. <laughs> I, well, I'm not like a, a huge fan of the genre. Right. There's, I've seen a few good ones. Like I think always like Sleepless in Seattle yeah. and When Harry Met Sally. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a few kind of standard mm-hmm. rom-coms. But this is the best one I've ever seen, I think. Uh, and I had not even okay. really heard of it really? before. Um, I really enjoyed it. Stacy initially she was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Stacy's my wife. Sorry, right. listeners. Uh, my wife was like, I don't know. Like, hey, what is this old black and white movie? Right. Anyway, she got absorbed into. It. Okay. Yeah, she really liked Good. it too. So, Good. anyway, we really yeah. like this movie, uh, and I think it it does. I I think it, it's very moving, and it, it's a kind of odd portrayal. Like initially, yeah. you sort, it sort of strikes you as one kind of film, and then it turns exactly. out to be something rather different. Right. Um, but it was an inspired choice, and I give you much credit. So I look forward to hearing you break <laughs> it down. See, I'm yeah. never wrong. No, that's right. I'm that's never right. wrong. <laughs> um, and interesting, you know, I think our first instinct would be often to call it a rom com, but I think I told you I saw an interview with Jack Lemmon uh, when he was older, mm-hmm. in which he said. It's not a comedy. Right. Said, yeah. Billy Wilder and I both, you know, didn't see it as a comedy. Well, and it is kind of a comedy, right? Is. In terms I mean, of like the structure, the way it the ends. Structure yeah. and I mean his performance is comedic. I mean Absolutely it is. Yeah. <laughs> of course. So yeah, so the apartment, uh, as I said at the beginning, needed a Christmas movie mm-hmm. and then it occurred to me, this is set around Christmas and the more I after I rewatched it and thought about it, I think I can make a case for it actually being a Christmas movie, not an accidental Christmas movie. Yeah, I, I yeah. agree. And let me just say, for those who haven't heard of it or seen it, I mean, if you're inclined to watch, like, White Christmas with Bing Crosby or any yeah. of the sort of older holiday pictures, mm-hmm. I really think this one's better. So I think you should – I mean, I wouldn't – personally would not put it ahead of It's a Wonderful Life. Right. But yeah. I think it's um, – 
I think it's a very worthy film worthy. to sort of crank out in December at some point. Yeah, yeah. or New Year's. Somebody I yeah, that's true. was talking to about this on Instagram said it's their New Year's movie. Okay, I get that. Yeah, yeah I get that. Yeah. Okay, All so right, tell so us about it. The Apartment, released in 1960, directed by the great Billy Wilder, along with Frank Capra, you know, and many others, one of the great 20th century mm -hmm. filmmakers. Um, starring Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, and a number of others whose faces are probably familiar to you if you watch like 60s sitcoms, <laughs> right? Right. Like Ray Ralston from My Favorite Martian. Yes. The guy who was, uh, I think, uh, Darren's boss and Bewitched is in it. Mm -hmm. One of the skeevy executives. But anyway. Yeah, they're, it's, a, it's a clown show in there. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a movie, you know, you know. It's despite, a Me Too kind of movie. It is, yeah. despite us saying, oh, watch this for Christmas. It's a movie about sexual harassment. Correct. Is what yeah. it is. And right. if anybody uh, was a fan of Mad Men, mm -hmm. raises my hand. Yeah, me you too. Know, <laughs> big fan, yeah. I mean, clearly, Weiner, Matt Weiner was inspired by many aspects have of the Have you read that? I agree with that. But have you read that? I, I would be interested read that, to know. but it seems pretty obvious The part that where it strikes me is very similar to Mad Men is this whole idea of, like, living one life in the city and a different life in right. Westchester County or in Connecticut right. somewhere, right. which becomes, like, that's sort of the driving sort of device in the film mm -hmm. to kind of push the plot forward. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, so Wilder was Austrian, was born in Austria. He ended up in the United States in 1934 from a Jewish background. Um, much of his family perished in the Holocaust. Mm. Um, his first, he had made films in Europe before, or had participated in the making of films in Europe before he emigrated. But his first kind of claim to fame in the United States, he was a co-writer on the film Ninochka, um, starring Greta Garbo, um, made by Ernst Lubitsch. And, um, but then, and then he started directing his own films. And he is famous for sharp, dark, um, very kind of on point films. I think. Did he direct Marilyn Monroe? Because I've, I, in my mind, well, he's like yes, That's what I thought. Yeah, right. right. Okay. So he did that. Yeah. When I, that's where I've really heard right. his name mentioned. Yeah. Before. So I mean, yeah. some of his most famous films are Double Indemnity. Yes. The okay. great film right. noir starring Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray, who's in this film. Ace in the Hole, starring Kirk Douglas, which is, I think, a should be required viewing for anybody who thinks about media, who huh. thinks about, you know, social media and popular culture and all that kind of thing. Ace in the Hole. Um, Sunset Boulevard, of course, Starlight yeah. 17. Some Like It Hot, right before this. And Some Like It oh. Hot, starring Tony Curtis, Marilyn Monroe, and Jack Lemmon. And Jack Lemmon said in this interview I watched where, you know, he just had wrapped Some Like It Hot and then Billy Wilder sent him screenplay to this. Um, and he was blown away. He said, I couldn't believe I'm going to get to make these two movies back to back. Um, it won Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay in 1960. And just to be clear, because yeah. I have not seen Wilder, so I've always heard yeah. of him. I'd heard of some yeah. like it hot. I've not seen these movies, so really? so I need to go back oh and gosh. do some yeah some rewatching, I guess, yeah. uh, or some first time watching, really. Yeah. But yeah, yeah no, yeah, I really thought this was good. So he's he's made a good impression. He, of me. That's yeah. good. Yeah. I'm sure he's pleased. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so the the plot of the apartment is, as I said, it's it's. A contemporary film. It's set in nineteen, you know, late fifties, early sixties. It's filmed. It was in black and white. It's one of the last major films of this period filmed in black and white. Hmm. Um, and I can't see it any other way. It would be. I don't think it would have the kind of everlasting impact that it 
has if it were in color. Um, and so here's the plot. Jack Lemon plays a guy named C.C. Baxter, Bud Baxter, who is buddy boy, buddy boy <laughs> who is a low-level, probably actuarial guy or something mm -hmm. in a big, huge insurance firm in New York City. And we have these shots of this big cavernous room filled with desks and people typing in on adding machines. 30,000 employees. Yeah. Very Potter-like world. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. This yeah. is what you get. Um, and he is just a guy, right? And he's Jack Lemon, so he's, you know, funny and kind of wry and put upon and all of that kind of thing. But he's running a racket. And not a racket. I wouldn't call it a racket. Would you say that he's running it? Yeah. I feel like he's being run. Well, he is being okay. run. Right, right. right. Okay. But he's managing it. Yes. He's I mean, the he's, manager. I would say they're a kind of reluctant participator. Right, but, he, but he's made his choices. Yes, that's true. He's that's made true. his choices. Okay. So Explain. He, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, <laughs> so you he, can tell I'm fired up to talk about this movie. All right, keep so going. He, yeah. he has an apartment, a little walk-up, one-bedroom apartment in a row house in New York City. Back in the days when one could afford something like yeah, that, right, right? Right off Central Park. Right. Yeah. I know. And so sounds lovely, honestly. I know. <laughs> and he um he has gotten into a situation where he lets executives in his firm use his apartment for assignations. Extramarital assignations. Right. Um and he has a schedule, which sometimes gets screwed up, in which he, you know, allows them to come to his apartment with a girl, with a young woman, party for a couple of hours. He's not there. He leaves and he lets them do this. And it's something that he does I mean, because he feels that it's necessary for him to do this in order to rise up right. the corporate ladder. Right. And in fact, that's kind of made clear to him. I was going to say, it's true. It's, it's not, true. He doesn't feel that way. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's true. literally true. Yeah. Right. He, he, you know, however he's gotten himself into this, mm. he's in it. Right. He's in it now. And he has to allow these guys, and it's four guys, four men, uh, who are his consistent, um, who consistently use the place. And um, he even overhears one of them say, as he's lur lurking at his own doorstep, he overhears one of the guys say to the girl he's bringing, yeah, this, you know, schmuck is going to, you know, if he doesn't let me use it, yeah, he'll, mm. he'll hear about it. Right. So he knows that. Um, and at some point, word of this situation gets to the big guy, Fred McMurray, playing a guy named Sheldrake, who's like the president or whatever, CEO. And you just want to punch this you guy the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's bad in every possible way. He, he's, he's the Potter of the movie. Exactly. But it may be almost worse than Potter. I don't know. Anyway. Oh, yeah. 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 And so he has heard that something is going on. And so he brings Baxter into his office. And Baxter thinks he's about to get like in trouble. Mm -hmm. But in fact, what Sheldrake wants is the key. Mm. He wants to be able to use the apartment too. And he makes promises to Baxter. You know, you let me use this. You let me do Which this. Which he does keep. Which he does. He does. Yes, he right. keeps his promises. And I will have to say that a Broadway musical was written based on this with music by Burt Bacharach. And the title of the musical was Promises, Promises. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, good factoid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so Baxter agrees. At the same time all of this is going on, Baxter is developing a 
nice little flirtation with Fran Kubelik, played by Shirley MacLaine, who is an elevator girl. Mm. So this is in the era when you didn't have self-service elevators, when every elevator in the big office building had an elevator girl and an elevator sergeant, a woman who like marched up and down with her clicker telling, you know, when the elevators were done and full and they could rise and all that kind of thing. And so Fran Kubelik, and I just want to mention that one of the kind of sweet things about this movie is that Baxter and Kubelik, Lemon and McLean, don't ever call each other by their first names. It's always uh, Mr. Baxter and Miss Kubelik. Mr. Baxter yeah, and Ms. I would, Kubelik. I didn't really <laughs> notice that, but I think yeah, you're definitely yeah. right. Yeah, that formality is very appealing, I think, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so, th- but they're developing this little flirtation because he's the only guy that treats her like a human being. You know, to the other executives, she's like a prize because she's standoffish. You know, they can get the telephone operator, the secretary, whoever, to hook up with them. Mm. But she won't do it. She won't do anything. You know, they can, you know, do whatever. But she's like, you know, forbidden, not forbidden fruit, but she's or like. Are, are they laying off because the they, big guys? They don't know. They, okay. They don't know. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. And, um, and so. This little kind of flirtation is developing. Baxter has, at the same time, agreed to let um, Sheldrake use his apartment for assignation with a woman. We don't know who. But then we find out who. Right, right. Because then we find out that, of course, the woman that Sheldrake wants to take and does take to Baxter's apartment is Fran, is Miss Kubelik the Shirley MacLaine character. And all of this kind of comes to a head, a hinge, midway through the movie at a Christmas party. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so there's this debauchery of a Christmas party that happens. Very much like the Mad Men Christmas party. Yeah, very much. I mean, with even more necking and more more fake striptease and all of that kind of thing. And um, she's, you know, she's not going to go. She's going to, she's on the elevator and he tells her to, you know, come on and, and go. And, and at that point before he had tried to go out with her, mm-hmm. he had suggested a, um, a date to go see the music man. Um, but she had said, oh, I got to go out with somebody else. And it, it turned out it was Sheldrake, mm-hmm. which Baxter doesn't know, but we know because we see the scene in the Chinese restaurant. So he, you know, connects with her at the Christmas party. He says, come on. He puts a sign on her elevator and says, you know, we're out of service for now. And he brings her into the Christmas party. She apologizes to him for standing him up at the music man. And, you know, we think that maybe something's going to happen between them. And then they both have their kind of illusions crushed Mm -hmm. because she, he goes and gets a drink. She has a conversation with Sheldrake's secretary who says, oh, how's the branch manager from Kansas City? Right, right, right. Which is her, which is what he would tell his wife. Mm. Oh, I got to have dinner with the branch manager from Kansas City. And she, the secretary tells Miss Kubelik, Shirley MacLaine, you're not special. Mm-hmm. You're one of many. Right. You know, there have, I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And there have been many, and there are probably going to be more. There's nothing, you know, no matter what he promises you, you're not special. Right. So she's bearing this on her with her. She goes and Baxter, Jack Lemon comes and with the drinks and all of that kind of thing. And she's upset. 
and he has gotten a new hat that he's trying on. He wants to know how it looks and all of that kind of thing. And is still suggesting they go out, you know, let's go, let's go for a walk. Let's, you know, walk through the city. Let's go out to dinner. Let's all of this kind of thing. And he's fussing with his hat. And so she says, here, well, just, you know, look at yourself. And she gives him her compact with a mirror. And this is a compact that he had found in his apartment after Sheldrake was there with a cracked mirror. And he had given it to Sheldrake, and Sheldrake had said, oh, yeah, and she threw it at me. You know, you know women, <laughs> right. you know how they are. And so she presents him, you know, said, look, you know, just she doesn't know who he is or that it's his apartment. And she gives him the mirror to look at. You could say it's Chekhov's compact mirror, right? And he, rec he says he recognizes it's her. Mm -hmm. you know, she's the one. And he doesn't say anything, but he just, he knows. So that, that's the point at which both of their illusions about their lives start mm. to crumble. Right? And in a way, you could say this is the point where the film transitions from comedy to drama. Right. Right. I mean, right. I think that's because there are there, there's a lot of very Jack Lemmon type parts at the right. beginning of the film. Some, right. some physical comedy, this sort of thing. But by this point in the film, it's, it's getting pretty serious. It's getting serious. Yeah. And because we both have two, you know, we have two heartbroken people and two mm. heartbroken people who think very poorly of themselves mm -hmm. you know uh, and they've been put upon by the they, same people right. in a lot of ways they're exactly. both i mean I, I hate to use the language of victimization but mm -hmm. in a sense they're being they're being preyed upon right by, by these executives and so on. right exactly exploited yeah and so then we shift into more of the christmas season and you know just to kind of run through what happens very quickly christmas eve sheldrake takes shirley mclean to baxter's apartment they have it out He's like trying to, you know, explain to him why he's not going to leave us. What tell his wife right now that he's going to divorce her and all that kind of thing. She's very upset. Um, Jack Lemon Baxter is in a bar uh, on Christmas Eve, drinking mm -hmm. his tail off. You know, you can count the number of martinis he's had by the number of olives on toothpicks he's <laughs> lining up, and he connects with this young, this woman, who's. Whose husband is a jockey who got who's in prison in Cuba, <laughs> and they connect, and he takes her back to the apartment with the intention of using his own apartment. For right. What for the first time apartment. apparently. Right, right. For the first time. Uh, despite the fact that the neighbors think that he has these wild raucous parties, exactly. which, which is a, a consistent kind of running joke in exactly. the movie. Yeah. And and his neighbor is a doctor, mm -hmm. Doctor Dreyfus, right. and his wife. And you're right. What they do, they think that he's a real therapist. A real, yeah, a real ladies' man. Yeah. Because oh, who's over tonight? Every Baxter? night, right, right. every night, there's something. Right. And so anyway, when Sheldrake had left the apartment, Shirley MacLaine's character, Miss Kubelik, had stayed behind mm. to fix her face. And she goes into Baxter's bathroom. She doesn't know it's his apartment. Remember, and she sees a bottle of second all, mm. sleeping pills, and so in a wordless kind of scene with music behind it, she decides to take them. And so when Baxter returns to his apartment with this other girl, he goes into his bedroom and he sees her, Shirley McLean, on his bed, passed out, sleeping. She won't wake up. Mm -hmm. He rushes the other woman out. He goes and gets the doctor. And there's a famous scene then of them reviving her, mm -hmm. of working to revive her. And of course, all this time, Dreyfus, you know, he says, who is she? Mm -hmm. And why is she like this? And here you he, go again, Baxter. Here you go right, again. Right. And he takes the fall. He says, mm -hmm. 
it's my fault. You know, she, we had an argument, you know how they are. We had an argument and the Dreyfus says to him, and then you went out and you got another girl, right? right. Okay. Um, and so she, you know, recovers eventually. She spends like a day or so in his apartment recovering. Her brother-in-law eventually comes and gets her, Mm -hmm. you know, again, thinking that Jack Lemmon is the reason for her. He could have played Nick in It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) He's like these tough guys with the, you know, he's slapping people around and everything. That's right. And, um, and so, you know, that crisis has passed, we think. And so then the next time we see them, they're back in the office Mm -hmm. building. And even though when uh, Baxter called Sheldrake on that Christmas morning to tell him that she had, you know, that Fran had tried to commit suicide and he was like basically indifferent, saying it's not my problem, Mm -hmm. they've reconciled. Sheldrake and Fran have reconciled anyway because she's kind of keeps saying she's in love with him. Right. That's one of the harder things to accept in the film is that, like, I, I think you have to kind of take it on its face, like... Yeah, she says she's in love with him, but he's he's so uh they just turned the football game on. Yeah. There's not even a football game right now. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Keep going. Let's finish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um Okay, we're gonna take a little break. <laughs> okay, so all right, that was interesting. So we're again we're at Ferris and forty first. We're a little later than we normally are, and it's you know, it's getting to be kind of happy hour. They decided to crank the TV on. <laughs> Uh, and there's football a game. yeah, there's a football game from like a week ago or something. <laughs> I mean, Trevor Lawrence is playing. I don't even think he played. I don't know what's going on. This is, nevertheless, they were very gracious. They've yes. turned the TV down, so we're ready to keep going with our discussion of the apartments. So we're ready going. to keep going. Yeah. Okay, so at this point, Baxter has been promoted one more time up to an office right next to Sheldrake's. Mm-hmm. In, ex- in and the agreement, the understanding is that. Sheldrake is going to have a key whenever he wants. He's mm-hmm. basically going to be able to do this. And then Baxter has a moment of conscience. And through this whole movie, Dr. Dreyfus, his neighbor, has been his kind of Jiminy Cricket, his conscience. Mm-hmm. He's accused him of being a nebbish. And then he says to him when he leaves uh, the situation with uh, Fran Kubelik, he says, you need to just be a mensch. Mm-hmm. You know what that means? Just be a human being, right? Stop. Just stop this nonsense and be a mensch. And it gets to a point where he finally figures it out. Baxter finally figures it out. Sheldrake demands the key. He gives him a key. Sheldrake follows him and says, this isn't the right key. And Baxter says, yeah, it's the key to the executive washroom mm-hmm. because... I don't need it anymore because I'm out. I'm out of here. Right. I'm out of here. I'm right. going to be a mensch. I'm finally, I'm going to be a mensch. And then Sheldrake's, you know, you're, you're going to lose your job. Right. Like, I don't care. Right. right. He doesn't care. And then we're on New Year's Eve and Sheldrake and Fran are mm-hmm. out at the Chinese restaurant. Fantastic scene. It's a great yeah. scene. And everybody's singing, going to sing Auld Lang Syne. And he says, well, you know, what we got to do, we're going to have to go down to Atlantic City. And because mm-hmm. you can't get a hotel here in New York City. And Baxter's not, he wouldn't give me the key to his apartment. Right, right. And at that point, her face, you know, she's kind of sitting there with her funny hat on looking resigned. Right? Resigned. Um, well, she, can I say, she's yeah. a little bit nonplussed because right. Sheldrake says, I'm going, 
I'm going to leave my wife now. Right. Like, I mean it this time. This is, it's for real now. Right. And I think she has mixed feelings because she knows he's a slime ball. Right. But she's gone, she's, she's sort of gone down this road to this right. point. So how can she turn back? And I think there's right. a little, there's a feeling of being stuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a exactly. Way. Yeah. Exactly. But then he tells her Baxter wouldn't give me the key to the apartment, right. and he said, especially if I were going to take you there. Right. And he says, "What does he have against you?" And yeah. she says, "I don't know." And you can just see the emotions playing on her face in a very subtle way. He turns away to seeing all the anxiety, and of course, when he turns back. She's That's gone. the part. That's the great part. Yeah. <laughs> she's gone, and she's running down the street yeah. to his apartment where he has decided to pack up and leave. He's decided to move. Um, and she gets to the door of his apartment and she hears a pop and she panics because he had told her before about his own suicide attempt, which mm. involved a gun over a girl. Mm. And he said, and this kind of affects the, the last scene. He said, yeah, I'm, I sh- ended up shooting myself in the knee, and it took me a year for the knee to get better, but I got over the girl in three mm. weeks. <laughs> right. And she says, well, what is she, where is she now? He said, oh, she got married, she has four kids, and she sends me a fruitcake every Christmas. So she gets there, she hears this pop, she panics, she bangs on the door, you know, Mr. Baxter, Mr. Baxter, and he opens it with a champagne bottle. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's all he's done. And she's so relieved. She goes in, they sit down, and she tells him, uh, you know, it's over between, you know, Ms., me and Mr. Sheldrake. And he says, well, what about Mr. Sheldrake? What are you going to do? And he says, well, she says, I'll send him a, pound, a fruitcake every Christmas. <laughs> and again, a very subtle thing, but we see it on his face, this realization of what she's actually telling him. And he starts professing his love for her. I love you, Miss Kubelik. You're the you know most wonderful person in the world. And she just looks at him. They're playing gin rummy. They've taken out a set of cards. They're playing, finishing up their gin rummy game. And she just hands him the cards and she says, shut up and deal. Yeah, right. And it's, it's one of the great closing lines. I mean, Billy Wilder, the, he had three movies with perfect closing lines. You got some like it hot, but you haven't seen. Right. Closing line, nobody's perfect. Sunset Boulevard, ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> and then this one, Shut Up and Deal. And so it's it's just a, a marvelous film that I think, you know, is about, not only about the time and about sexual harassment and about exploitation and all that kind of thing, but it's more importantly about, um, first of all, how we can get wrapped up in sin. Mm-hmm. You know, because Jack Lemon is like, He's Jack Lemmon in this movie. He's great. You know, he's, like, funny and cute and affable and all that kind of thing. But he's, like, enabling some terrible behavior. Right, right. And, you know, and he's gotten trapped, again, because of his own choices. But because he feels that his own kind of well-being is, and his own sense of success is dependent on him cooperating with this. Right, right, right. And, um, and he's caught up in this kind of bureaucratic culture where, right. you know, getting promoted is the the only thing that matters. And right. he hasn't really stepped back to question, like, I, I think you, you get the sense that, like, he wish there's something absent in his life. Like, there's those, those scenes where he's standing out in the cold and right. these guys are using his apartment. He's sort of like, what am I doing this for? Right. But he hasn't really taken the time to truly challenge what he's doing until they're at the end. 
Right, yeah. and he when he's confronted. Or the, the, Bur- <laughs> Birmingham's finest. It's like we're in New York City. <laughs> right. it's like, Except oh we're not in New York City, oh but my yeah. Gracious. Oh my god. Right. Um, and, to, and, and that's kind of the crucial point: is what does it take? <laughs> you know, we got the motorcycle. Is note, what, note to self: This is probably too late to record. <laughs> Let's do right. this early. Yeah, next right. Time. Yes. Um, and, you know, so what does it take for both of them? We have two lost souls, really. Mm-hmm. You know, we have two people with, and I hate to use this word, terrible self-esteem. You know, they think they think very badly of themselves, but they and they both feel almost paralyzed. They f- don't feel that there's anything else they can do, mm-hmm. right? And so, what does it take to get? that to conquer that and it takes a sense of sacrifice mm-hmm. on his and a sense of a real threat to life which is what her attempted suicide presents and I think I think that's what works about the scenes right. uh, you know as a, the Harley Davidson pulls away uh, <laughs> I mean that's I think why you root when when, when Sheldrake when Sheldrake turns and and looks at the at, at where she's where Mrs. Kublik is Miss Kublik is right. sitting and realizes she's not there, right. it is kind of a fist pump because yeah. you so want it the whole film, you, right, you for hate her it to for see her, it. right? Mm-hmm. He's such a scumbag, mm-hmm. and then you also know that you know Baxter genuinely loves her, and he's right. gonna he's gonna leave, and he's never gonna know, you know, she'll right. never know, he'll never know, and there's a real sense of of unrequited love there's this sense of like they will never know that each of them really belongs with one another right and then finally when she that moment of recognition she takes off to run to baxter you're just like go go yes, go you know yes. don't let him catch you you know yeah and um and i and i do think it, it the whole movie is kind of sets you up for that feeling because they are like you said they're isolated lonely people mm-hmm. and they don't know what they could have and then right. when they finally realize it it's like you know it, it just sort of it's heartening, I guess. Right, it's yeah. heartening. And the thing I like about the character of Fran Kubelik, played by Shirley MacLaine, is that she's a very consistent character. Is that mm-hmm. she is she kind of deals with her pain and her sense of herself by wisecracks mm. and a little bit of wryness. And you, that is followed through to the very last line. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not, you know, you know, uh, effusively... Professing her love or anything like that, she says, "Shut up and deal." Yeah, right. But you right. know, you know what she means. So I think that the other thing, one of the other things I want to say about this is that I think the Christmas setting mm-hmm. actually really works here. Okay, I think it yeah, would I not this, be yeah. the same movie without this Christmas setting, hmm. um, because it, first of all, it highlights the hypocrisy of these guys. Mm-hmm. You know, that this is a time of family, togetherness, authenticity, love, and all this kind of thing. And we have these Cretans, you know, cheating on their wives. It's really highlighted in the scene where Baxter calls Sheldrake with the news of Fran's attempted suicide. And he's at his home. He's been playing with toys with his sons. Mm-hmm. And he basically, you know, it's, it's a total, totally false life. And it's made all the more kind of powerful by the fact that it's Christmas. Right. And this is supposed to be a time of authentic love and mm-hmm. authentic togetherness. And, and, and you might say, like, in a, in a kind of Kierkegaardian vein, I'm actually going to write about this in my Substack very soon. Yeah. But but it, it shows you the kind of the, the falsehood of, like, a nominal Christianity, right? They, they right. have the Christmas tree and the Christmas decorations, but he right. doesn't give a damn. 
Right. right. Uh, and I think, like you said, it really underlines his hypocrisy in a very profound way. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, the spirituality about mm-hmm. this, the spiritual takeaway, which is, you know, a human takeaway, but, you know, it's, we're talking about the incarnation, we're talking about Christmas, and in a Christian sense, they're the same thing, right? If you're talking about real humanity, you're talking about the incarnation, you're talking about what God has made possible for us. And, you know... It, it seems to me the central question is, what does it take to be a mensch? What does it take to be a human being? And, you know, the incarnation shows us very profoundly the dignity of human beings, right? That we're worth, you know, God coming into our world for. We're worth dying for. Um, and this is kind of a world in which that, dignity is ignored is exploited good intentions are exploited and what kind of better setting for that than Christmas Mm -hmm. in which we are thinking some of us are thinking about um, you know the dignity that God gives us through the incarnation and what does it take to kind of realize that well it takes a recognition of real love it takes authenticity it takes sacrifice and so you know when I can try to look at the apartment in those spiritual terms that's what I see and that's what I think the Christmas setting and the New Year's setting of course is you know new start and all that kind of thing it's very powerful Mm -hmm. and that it highlights the necessity of living as a authentic human being who is guided not by exploiting others but by love and kind of the magic that happens because the ending is magical mm-hmm. you know yeah. and and it's it's almost like a sign of this is what happens this is what happens when you're real and um so that's that's part of my take on the apartment it's um it's a wonderful wonderful film i have to say it's what my son david vining who writes about movies this is one of his top oh, 10 films okay. oh yeah. yeah and he has a a dedicated movie room where they have mm. the big tv and the chairs to watch oh really like the fancy chairs yeah like the recliners and everything yeah yeah to watch and he decorates it with you know movie posters and he went on a search i don't know if you ever found it for an old school tennis racket Mm. because he want one of the kind of funny moments in the film is that jack lemon's character wants to cook spaghetti and he cooks spaghetti but he doesn't have a strainer, so he uses a tennis racket, mm-hmm. an old wooden tennis racket to strain spaghetti, and David wanted to have that for his <laughs> part of his decor of his room. That's so, so funny. That's like one of the re- rewatchables categories is like really? if you could have one artifact from oh, a really? film. Right. That's actually one of their categories, oh, so yeah. we know what David's answer yeah. would be. <laughs> <Yeah. All right. laughs> the tennis racket. All right, so um, the categories. Okay, categories. Uh, funniest moment. <laughs> this is kind of a comedy, so I'm interested to know what you'll say. Yeah, here. well, mine is a little moment. I mean, there's mm-hmm. lots of funny moments mm-hmm. in it. Most of the funny moments are a little poignant, I think, mm-hmm. but this one just makes me laugh every time. So, as I said, uh, Baxter's next-door neighbor is a doctor, and he's a married doctor. And when Fran is recovering from her suicide attempt, um, the doctor's wife brings her soup. And mm-hmm. she, of course, is like, you know, she thinks that Jack Lemon's character is responsible for all this. She has no time for him. She mm-hmm. can't stand him. And so she, she's bringing soup for Fran Kublik in bed. And she says, oh, I, don't, I didn't bring a napkin, by which she means a proper cloth napkin. And right. she turns to the Jack Lemmon character and she says, 
do you have napkins? And he says, no, I have paper towels. And she says, beatnik. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's great. That's great. All right. Most poignant moment. Um... The last scene. The last scene. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think. I mean, it, could you if more for me? More specifically, it's when she turns away from Sheldrake and right, runs, right. I mean, that's right. when you know that they're they're gonna come together. There's right. no doubt in my mind. I mean, I know yeah. that there's that a little bit of heightened drama when she knocks on the door and he's right. not there. But I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, he's covering <laughs> it's the door. It's happening. Okay, so and if you can only watch one scene, is it the same? No, I would say the Christmas party. Okay. You know when they both realize the deception and yeah the, you know i mean i just think it's crucial it really yeah. is it really is a kind of film that and i think we were talking about this with some of the other movies we've mm-hmm. discussed as, as well uh lilies of the field for example yeah where you know you think that certain innovations in filmmaking or or, or quote-unquote sort of modern themes or yeah. whatever have never been tried before but this movie was definitely ahead of its time and i think yeah. i think you're right the office party it sets a template for a lot of critiques of kind of the male-dominated culture of the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s that mm-hmm. has become, you know, kind of a staple of, like, filmmaking and television since mm-hmm. the mid-2000s, yeah. you know. So but, I, right. but I, I mean, the reason I would choose it is because of what happens between them. Right, know, okay, she, right. And she the, the realizes the truth, and, right. and he realizes the truth. They both realize the truth about their situation. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. okay. And then the most, uh, you know, powerful performance, or who is the best performer? That's Shirley MacLaine. I mean, I okay. really do think. I mean, I love Jack Lemon. I'm right. a big fan of Jack Lemon, but he's playing Jack Lemon right. in this, and she, her performance is there's a lot of subtlety in it because she's a very she's a wounded woman, and she's torn and she's suffering, but she covers it up, mm-hmm. you know, and she covers it up with humor and self-deprecation and all of that kind of thing. But you can see it in her eyes and then the kind of the way she holds her mouth, you can see that there's a lot of stuff underneath. And I just think it's a lovely performance. So, yeah. okay. I mean, I'll, I'll put in just a plug for Lemon in that yeah. what I found particularly, I guess, moving about mm-hmm. his performance was how he kept taking the blame. Yeah. It would have been so yeah. easy to be like, this is not me. Like, right, I, you know, right. I'm in this bad position. These people right. are taking advantage of me and so on. But continually he tries to kind of deflect Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. I did this. I'm sorry. You know, please don't blame me. And I did. There was something about his willingness to take the blame that I found profound. Right. Um, you know, yeah. but I, I can totally see your point about Shirley MacLaine yeah. as well. Yeah. But okay. That's script. That's not profound. It's script, but well, no. But, but he but he pulls it off. Yeah, right? he does. Like yeah. he pulls it off. It's not. Right. He he doesn't just sort of go through the motions. But there's a sense in which you identify with his predicament. Right. And then you kind of know True. I probably wouldn't have done that. Right. <laughs> right. I would have been yeah. like, oh, that's not me. It's Sheldrake. <laughs> right. That Sheldrake yeah. bastard is doing right. this to me. Right. But instead, he he continually True. takes the punishment yeah um yeah. george bailey like maybe that's right yeah right okay <laughs> and then finally your 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 takeaway of the film uh don't be a nebbish be a mensch <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i like it i like it uh yeah be a mensch good 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 words uh as we uh, get ready for christmas so uh apologies for the interruption oh yeah oh uh, my gosh in case anybody's wondering uh i think I think the Jaguars just hit a kick to win the game, even though nobody's playing football right now. I have no idea why this game is on. Um, There's only like two other people out here. (laughs) But hey, we all got clips from the Jaguars, uh, you know, a game from a week or two ago or whatever it was. Uh, But in any case, thanks for bearing with us and I hope everybody has a very Merry Christmas. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we probably will be back soon. We need to discuss and lay out a schedule because you're traveling and and it's the holidays and so on. But hopefully we'll be back soon and Until then, we hope everybody does well, and we will be back in a week or thereabouts. All right, bye-bye.